Well, welcome everyone to the Full Life Podcast by Grace Church, where we hope to inspire, challenge, and clarify your next steps in faith. I'm David Lawson, and today we're going to be talking about the number one mental health issue in the world. We're going to be talking about anxiety. What is it, and how do we respond to it? And I'm happy to have with me today clinical psychologist, Dr. Charles Gibson, who will be helping us uh, understand a little bit more about anxiety and how we handle it in our lives. Uh, Charlie, welcome. So glad to have you with us today. Thank you, Dave. Glad to be here. Hope that I can indeed shed some light on this subject. Yeah. Um, now, believe it or not, there's probably people listening in or watching who might not know much about you or about your family. So why don't you uh, introduce them to us? Well, I've been involved with Grace Church for over 40 years. It's easy to remember because yeah. it's the age of my youngest daughter. We huh? came here when she was a baby. Yeah. And the, um, the church has been central in the raising of our kids. We have four adult children hmm. and uh, seven grandchildren. And, uh, yeah, greatly appreciate the Lord's hmm. beneficence in our family's lives hmm. uh, through all these years and in the role that the church has played in that, too. Mm -hmm. So, Well, this is a major issue uh, in our culture and really even around the world. I think even especially since COVID, I feel like it's kind of bore down more on us since that time by hearing more and more and more about anxiety. And so I really feel like this is something that we as a culture need to get freedom from as much as we can. We need to understand it more. Even talking with people who are followers of Jesus Christ, this seems very disruptive in their life, very paralyzing for them. Uh, we're talking about pursuing the full life that God has for us. And when we are restrained by something like this, we just don't have the freedom, it seems, to pursue that. And so I'm really glad that we're able to talk about this. Uh, I was reading an article in Psychology Today that said that there are some 40 million people in the U.S. alone who are suffering from some sort of anxiety disorder, and that uh, throughout a lifetime, some one-third of our population uh, will struggle with some sort of out-of-control anxiety. I mean, those numbers are astronomical. They're almost unbelievable. I might even be getting a little anxious about this conversation because the the, the topic is so huge. So thank you for helping us with this. Um, maybe we should start from pretty simple. Let's start with a little bit of definition. Um, I kind of feel like um, maybe I'm wrong, but I kind of feel like anxiety is lumped in with some other things. We kind of equate anxiety with worry or we equate anxiety with stress. And of course, it's kind of all related, but can you give us some definition there? Can you help us kind of sort that out a little bit? Well, I'm going to take a parenthesis here, though, and say that there was a book written back in the late 60s called The Age of Anxiety. Hmm. And so we don't have a an exclusive claim on anxiety these days. That was, you might remember, the age of the Cold War yeah. and nuclear threat. And I think that's part of the mm. reason, frankly, we've had some nuclear saber, saber rattling in the last few years. And I think people feel like things may feel more out of control than they mm. once did. Mm. What are we going to do about that? Mm. Individually, probably not much. But the COVID pandemic has I think, made everybody feel more vulnerable, and that's a component always of anxiety. But if we talk about fear versus anxiety, we're talking about the common thread of a threat. Something mm. has to be a threat mm. in order for those things to become relevant. And the threat typically, which produces stress, which is a physiological response, is identifiable. Like, oh my goodness, I'm afraid I might get COVID. Mm. Um, Another kind of threat, of course, is like financial threat. Mm. If inflation is real bad and we're having trouble 
paying our bills, paying our rent, whatever it might be, that's a different kind of threat. But the kind of threat that is very different is anxiety in which there is no definable threat. Mm -hmm. A person just feels uneasy, can't put their finger on it, and um, it's very hard for them to cope with it because it comes out of nowhere, so, so seemingly. Yeah. And even if we're all in it together, that doesn't help because when you got it, you're the one feeling it and hurting it. Yeah. yeah. I kind of feel like, as I mentioned before, I kind of feel like we're, we've lumped some things together and mm -hmm. you're helping us sort that out. But I also feel like sometimes we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater mm -hmm. where uh, anything that causes anxiety is bad. And am I right in thinking that there's some times when anxiety is warranted or it's okay to have some anxiety? Not only okay, but helpful. Mm. Um, one of the most common kinds of anxiety is anxiety about one's health. Um, I just saw something on my skin and I'm afraid I might have melanoma or something, I've had a cough, it's been persistent. Is it serious? Is it a problem? Hmm. Those can be alerting kinds of things. So sometimes the symptoms that cause anxiety will also prompt appropriate behavior. And if they do, then they've served a useful purpose. If, on the other hand, symptoms or any other kind of anxiety-provoking stimulus just lays there, basically, and it just keeps on being aggravating. Now you don't have acute stress, you have chronic stress, mm. and that does known damage. Mm. So there's acute stress, chronic stress, and then there's also a fear, which tends to be a, an identifiable mm -hmm. threat. You've talked about stimulus a few mm -hmm. times. Yeah. Uh, you shared with me an illustration um, a couple of days ago, actually about a week yeah. ago or yeah. so, that I think was very helpful in helping us to understand and discern what's actually happening in the uh, response that is that we describe as anxiety. Would you mind sharing that with us a little bit? For those of you who are only listening in, he's going to be using a whiteboard, but we'll try to describe it as best we can. But I thought this was really helpful. This is a uh, schematic of an experiment that has been done, and it is in the realm of what we call avoidance behavior. Mm. And this is a grid that can be electrified. Now, for those who are part of PETA or just animal <laughs> lovers in general, this is not a tetanizing shock. This is just uncomfortable. So the floor is a grid. It's the kind floor of a, is a grid. Okay. And I'm going to draw a net here that goes across this portion of the, of the field. And then we're going to have a dog over here. So the dog's on one side of the net. Or one the side of the net. Mm -hmm. dog is over here. And the dog's doing okay. Nothing's happening. And then they turn some shock on. Okay. And it's, a, it's enough uncomfortable that the dog wants to get away from it. So it sort of scampers around a bit and eventually comes over to the other side. And when it does that, it discovers there's no shock over there. Okay, so good. But then, of course, the experimenters always turn the shock on on the other side. Hmm. And the dog, again, is in conflict because... I just got shocked on the other side. I don't want to go back there. But eventually overcomes that. The dog eventually learns the behavior well. When the shock comes on, if I jump over the net, mm. I get away from mm. it. So mm. it's escape behavior. So mm -hmm. far, we don't have avoidance. We have escape. The experimenter then does something different. There's a light that comes on about a second before the shock comes on. Mm. So it's a warning signal. Eventually, the dog learns to jump when the warning signal comes on, it says, in essence, if we put thoughts into the dog's mind, uh-oh, that thing's coming again. And so it will jump 
before it gets shocked. Mm. And that's the avoidance part of this. So far, we've got a dog that's learned to jump when the shock comes on, learned that the light comes on, it means the shock is coming, and learned that if he moves, then he's free of the shock. So there's this avoidance behavior that develops yes. because of the stimulus of the light. And this is the conditioned part of that because the dog has learned to associate the light coming on with the shock mm -hmm. coming on. Now the other thing that happens is now the experimenter changes the condition. There's no more shock at all. So then the question is, how long will the dog keep jumping? Mm. That, that's the question. How long is this dog going to keep jumping? And the short answer is for a long time because the dog believes that that shock still can be avoided, and if I jump, then I'm safe. Mm. That's a model for a lot of anxiety behavior. One of the obvious examples I mentioned, uh, health issues, sometimes people have a headache or they have a little trouble catching their breath. And they don't know the difference between, is this a serious problem mm. or is this a minor problem? So what do they do? They jump. Mm. They go to the emergency room mm. over something that does not require the emergency room. Now, mm. I just said also there are times sure. when health matters need to be responded to. But if you're over-responding to them out of anxiety, then you have a problem. And mm -hmm. the problem is that you aren't discerning the difference between a real threat and a feared threat. The only way for this dog to learn not to jump is it has to be restrained or in some way figure out the shock isn't on anymore. Mm. And that may be either through, you know, it's, it's not prevented physically from jumping or there's some other um, way of attenuating the shock so that the dog realizes that there's nothing there anymore. Mm. The application of that yeah. to people then is how do you learn to make, cope with anxiety? Right. And part of that, the short answer is you have to learn to tolerate anxiety. We can talk some more about that, but that's a good bit of what cognitive behavioral, behavioral therapy is about, le learning to tolerate anxiety over time. So, so we have to become more discerning then? Is that kind of... Uh, well, part of it is a matter of becoming more discerning, but it's also becoming um, focused enough to say, what am I, am I afraid of? What am I responding to? Why am I experiencing this, mm. this uh, anxiety? And what am I doing about it? That's actually a very uh, good example of what we call obsessive compulsive behavior. Compulsions almost always originate because they relieve anxiety. And what relieves mm. anxiety is reinforcing. Mm. So if, if I'm afraid that uh, I didn't do something right in my routine, one of the common ones is I'm afraid I didn't lock the door. Uh, it's time to go to bed. I don't want to leave the door unlocked, so I better go check. Checking and rechecking is often a part of a compulsive behavior pattern. Mm. People that do that are trying to reassure themselves, but they don't know when to quit. Mm. They can't say, I got it. I'm confident. It's okay. The door really is locked. And so they keep checking over and over again. I've known people who have done that seven, eight, ten times. And it's sort of like you're, a, um, you're creating a burden in your mm. life and you're probably disrupting the household of sleep and so on. Yeah. So. so our behaviors when we're anxious are an attempt to relieve us. Is that what you're saying? Very often, yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Uh, sometimes um, there are some things that – are what you call nervous reactions. 
I may have some of those today. <laughs> the uh, idea, sometimes people pull their socks up right. when they're nervous. It's a yeah. tension reliever. Okay. And that's a different kind of behavior. That's not an operant behavior. Right. That'd be more of a, right. a nervous behavior. But yeah. Um, yeah, we do something when we're anxious, partly because anxiety is so uncomfortable. Mm. It is so intolerable that people mm. just can't really bear it very long. Yeah. So you'd mentioned before uh, when you talked about um, anxiety, how back in the '60s, and even like we don't we don't have a corner on the market today when it That's comes right. to anxiety. We've right. been doing, but you talked about some of those things that bring about anxiety in our lives, whether it be inflation or a threat of war, or whatever it might be. Um, how would you categorize those things that create anxiety? And would you say there are some predispositions even that people might have? toward it? Sure. I think some people are more or less uh, hardwired for anxiety responses, and and that just means they're more susceptible to them. But I also think there are much less dramatic causes of anxiety than war or threats of war and so on. Mm -hmm. It can be things like you have an obnoxious neighbor who lets his dog bark into the wee hours of the morning, or you have somebody that is uh, revving their car, and it's aggravating in itself but there's also the fact that the neighbor is obnoxious and they may pick a fight with you if you confront them about it. And so it creates a lot of tension. Most anxiety-provoking circumstances are very local. Mm. Those ones that, we, that I cited a moment ago, mm-hmm. you know, I could say, well, you need to watch the news list. And I would <laughs> tell people to do yeah. that. Um, but it's also the case that it's the stuff that we have some proximity to that is most likely, again, health crises, et cetera, that may be the hardest things to ignore or to know when to ignore and when to respond to. Would you say that if we become more aware, um, and maybe I'm throwing out some 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 words here that are, might not be apt in terms of the description, but if we are more aware of our environment, more aware of our surroundings, and we're more tuned in to what tends to cause anxiety in us, do you think that's that's would that be helpful for us to to under this this causes me anxiety and I need to figure out why? I think that that's very true. I also think that that um, being a person of faith, that means I'm also aware of what I need to pray about. Mm. To say, Lord, I have this problem and this is causing me distress, and I know that you promised that you will give me peace, and this is the barrier in my life, Lord. Can you help me with this, or bring along the help that will? Mm-hmm occasion some improvement there. Yeah, yeah. Because as I said, anxiety is really uncomfortable. Yeah. It's not just annoying. Yeah. Well, we looked at the stats before. We've talked about how pervasive it is. And so and so we talked about this a little bit uh, previously. But I just want to make sure we clarify something. Just because I'm feeling anxiety uh, could mean that I'm just normal, that I, it's a normal response as, as a human being. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean I have a disorder. But on the other hand, uh, there are times when I might need a little help with it. So can you help us kind of discern that a little bit? I know you want to be really, really careful about uh, what kind of advice you give, but how do we begin even thinking about that? What is a legitimate response and what it might be a little bit of a disorder? Uh, most of the disorder categories in the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statist- Statistical Manual, have a duration attached to them. Um, they need to have occurred for at least a month or six months or a year uh, in order to qualify for a diagnosis. Ordinary acute stress or anxiety is short-lived. 
Mm. Usually when the situation resolves, mm. then the anxiety resolves. Mm. But there are other kinds of circumstances, like when I said that the uh, the threat is not really there in anxiety. It's sort of already been dealt with, but it still feels like it's there, like the dog with the light coming on. I don't know if I still need to jump. So I'm going to jump because I want to be yeah. on the safe side. And that kind of stuff is harder to overcome because it's not as definable. Yeah. I think that's a really key point. When the situation resolves, the anxiety resolves. Like that's, right. that's a really key thing to be looking out for. It also is an assignment. It says mm. it's sort of like the light comes on in the dashboard. What am I going to do about it? Mm. I can ignore it and worry about mm. it for the rest of the trip. Or I can say, I probably need to get that checked. If I'm going another 400 miles, I probably get that checked before I embark. Yeah. So assignment. That's that's a really good word. And the and the dashboard example is really mm-hmm. helpful. Mm-hmm. That's good. Um, so you mentioned as a man of faith, I'm a man of faith. Uh, how we look at these things uh, is influenced by our faith. So as a man of faith, uh, what are you talked about a way to pray? What are some other things that you are thinking about? You're processing in terms of how to handle anxiety when it comes our way. Well, I think the big one is that in the end we know that. We are saved by faith, mm. and we don't have to do it ourselves. We don't have to hustle and put things right and so on. But it is also true that many of the people that I see in my practice are Christians. They're mm. serious, faithful mm. Christians, and that does not automatically relieve them of anxiety. But I will say very often it means they need to practice uh, employing their faith in a deeper level and speaking more directly to it through prayer. Another way is to talk to friends. You don't always have to seek professional help. Mm. But if you carry it all by yourself, you're asking to do a lot. Because we're talking about the difference between a short-lived anxiety or a stress that resolves versus one that does not. And the other part of that is that uh, it has to be disruptive of one's Mm. life to Mm. be relevant enough or Mm. serious enough that you say, I can't keep going like Mm. this. It's affecting my quality of life. It's affecting my freedom. You meant our freedom in Christ. Well, there's no real freedom in Christ if you don't have the emotional capacity to exercise it because you've sort of set it aside then. And I think that realizing that if we have that freedom, how can I re-avail myself of it? That's that's really helpful. I the, The disruption part, is really, it's kind of a tipping point. That's Mm -hmm. kind of, I probably need to look at this a little bit more. If it doesn't resolve when the situation is over, uh, when the situation resolves, that's an indicator. Uh, If I can't handle, if there's, if I, if there's not an assignment that I can't fulfill with it, that is an indicator. And this whole disruption, that's another indicator. That's, that's really helpful Mm -hmm. because I'm sure that you've heard about some recommendations about how to handle anxiety that uh, probably aren't all helpful. Well, that's so true, and often it's people who intend the best. Um, a child comes to a parent and says, uh, Daddy, Mommy, I'm afraid to go because there's monsters in my bedroom, and the parent tries with all diligence to say, no, there, you know there's no monsters in there. There's not a problem. You cannot reason with unreason. Mm. And so your best bet is to say, I can see you're really scared, or I can see some empathic response. That must be really hard. It's really hard to go to sleep when you're scared. I wonder mm. what we could do about that. And then mm. pray together. Or let me come and sit with you for a little bit. Something that sort of helps with the transition. Mm. But um, it is very often the case that parents rush too quickly. Mm. That's 
that's not anything. And I don't just mean parents. I think people yeah. in general, too. Yeah. I've known people who are afraid to drive on the freeway. And people will say, you don't need to be afraid to drive on the freeway. You know, just be careful. Drive on your side of the road. And, you yeah. Know. But logic doesn't work. Right. The same is true. Another common fear is fear of flying. Yes. Some people will not get in an airplane because they're afraid of getting up in the air in a metal tube, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't enjoy either, but I'm not afraid of it. I just yeah. don't like it. Yeah. But the point is that it gets in the way of living your life, and what do you do with that? Some people take a medication for that prescribed um, and are able then to rebuild some confidence in their mm -hmm. ability to cope. Mm -hmm. But as long as there's sort of that barrier, it is very hard to get anywhere mm. beyond stuck. So, so um, sometimes people will, they'll take your advice, they'll go and talk to somebody. We might be the person they talk to. That's right. And so uh, what I'm hearing you saying is the worst thing to do is be dismissive. Oh, it's nothing. Right. Uh, but to kind of enter into it a little bit with them and ask some questions and find out how they're feeling about it. Or I might say you don't want to be falsely reassuring or preeminently right. um, reassuring. You're right. saying it too quickly. One of the uh, themes of my work is understand first, then instruct. Mm. And that we so often want to say, what you need to do yeah. is X, Y, and Z. Usually people who hear that do not feel heard. Mm. They feel instructed. Yeah. They feel you don't get it. You don't know what it's like for me. And they're not going to pay much attention yeah. to anything until you feel until they feel that they have been heard yeah. and understood. Well, understood and instruct uh, sounds a lot like quick to listen, slow to speak. That is very true. <laughs> it sure yep. does. Yep. Uh, so I want to wrap up our time here a little bit by pressing in a little bit more on these principles you've been talking about of truth and trust. Um, you've mentioned both of those in different ways, the, the truth about who we are in Christ, the truth about who Christ is, the truth and the reality about the situation, and then the trust in God. Can you talk a little bit, can you, can you help us uh, wrap that up a little bit more in terms of how you're thinking about it? Well, certainly the trust does involve trusting the Holy Spirit to mm. intervene in your life and to help you with the genuine problem. There's also the ironic thing, trusting yourself a little bit. If you think you locked the door, why mm. have you come to the conclusion that you didn't lock the door? Mm. What, is the, what is the reason for that? Self-doubt can be a tremendous mm. barrier to feeling settled and comfortable and ready for the next step. I know you've been an athlete in the past, and many athletes have performance anxiety. And the performance anxiety, I'm, I'm going to be on the field, whether it's playing baseball, baseball or basketball court or whatever it might be. But once they got on the field, the anxiety falls away because now i got to get, yeah. get down to business. Right. There's some aspect of that in other anxieties too. And the most common of the social anxieties, there are many kinds, but is public speaking. Mm -hmm. Public speaking is something that is very hard for many people. When that class comes in high school, they're likely to be absent. Mm. It's just very hard. But the fact is that if you do trust yourself by doing some rehearsals, it's when you go in cold, you don't have any idea right. what you're going to say, then you have a problem. Yeah. So yeah. there is preparation involved, too. Yeah. yeah. So I think there's that uh, trust aspect of trust the Lord to be there for you. Trust God that he has, he has saved you. We've already won. Hmm. Uh, but there's also the matter of how do I appropriate that 
today. Yeah. And I think that promise that he is walking with us, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that he is in the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, he is walking with us. And the fact that he entered into our circumstances, that's one of the beauties of the incarnation. He entered into our circumstances. He understands the the situations that we face and the anxieties that would be out there in life. I'm reminded of Hebrews. Yes, exactly. He's our most excellent high priest. That's right. Yeah. And he is... No temptation. No temptation, yeah, right. So, No temptation has befallen a man that um, uh, is not common to all men. So, yeah, I think the, the, the trust and the truth part is really... And we have, to, we have to remind ourselves of those things on a regular basis and be able to confront uh, those things uh, in wisdom and with discernment and the, and the grace that the Lord has given us. Yeah. And presumably, we're not going to trust something unless we believe it to be true. Right. Because otherwise, you're going to keep scrambling, trying to make it up on your own and so on. And right. That do- clearly does not work. Yeah. Well, thanks, Charlie. This has been very helpful. Appreciate it. You've, you've given us some really practical things to be thinking about in terms of assessing our own situation. And I think it's been really helpful. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to all of you who have uh, listened in. We appreciate you spending time with us. And we trust that what we've talked about today has been helpful to you as you pursue and take the next steps in the full life that God has for you. If you don't have a church home, you're certainly welcome to join us here at Grace Church. You can go to graceforohio.org. You can learn about our meeting times and our streaming times if uh, the distance doesn't permit you uh, to join us. But we trust and we pray that uh, this has been helpful for you as you pursue the full life that God has for you. 